episode 59 of Fitness Behaviour with Bevan James Isles, an interview with one of the most inspirational people in the world. Radio team, welcome along to episode 59 of Fitness Behaviour, your fortnightly podcast on behave, the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness and all the benefits that come alongside it. Um, I'm sitting in my office today, I've got, I've got myself a new office chair, <laughs> my, my old office chair, um, it died on me, it kept kind of dropping down, the, obviously the gas kind of section of it just kind of keep breaking and I've got this kind of, I decided I'm going to invest in a good chair and to say I'm, I'm really liking my new chair. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. Today's show is an interview show. I had a, and I had an interview lined up for today's show, and unfortunately they had to reschedule the interview. So I kind of thought, what am I going to do? And I could go back to, you know, the show where I'm kind of the Bevan show, but I thought instead I would do an interview that I would give you guys an interview that I did on my other podcast, I Am Talk, years ago with one of the most inspirational people in the world, and it's an inspirational team of this person and his son, um, but I'll give you a bit more detail of that in a second. I remember when I was a young man, it was funny, when I remember we got Sky TV, which is New Zealand's equivalent of paid TV, we, you know, like most countries, we didn't really have cable TV, and we, we got Sky TV, and my parents got Sky TV pretty early on, and I became obsessed with the sports channel, and to the point where I watched everything on the sports channel. There was moments of my life when I was a young man where seriously tv consumed my life way too much and i just spent hours and hours watching sports tv and while uh i love that probably needed to move away from it eventually which i did but um i kind of consumed all different levels of sport and i remember watching espn which was this kind of new thing and it was pretty mind-blowing one day I was watching espn and they had a sporting event which i'd never really seen before and it was called the ironman and the ironman you know, I, I was watching this event and it was, you know, it was pretty inspirational watching. And while I was watching this, there was a story of this father who was doing the Ironman with his son who had cerebral palsy. And what he was doing was he was completing the Ironman, taking his son around the whole course. And when I say a son, at this stage, it was an adult son. So the son was a fully sized man. And what this man done, what, what this team did, is the father towed his son around in a little kind of blow-up dinghy on the swim. So he swam 3.8k with his son. Basically, he's got a harness where he's pulling a, a boat with his son in the boat. Then he got on the bike, and it was almost like, you think of like a paper boy with a carrier on the front. Well, his son was on a carrier on the front of his bike, and then he ran the marathon pushing his son in like a tram-like kind of buggy device. And I remember I knew nothing about triathlon at this stage in my life and I just watched this and I remember the moment, there's this moment in this video where they finish the race and uh, and I remember as a young man I was just so inspired by this. Um, it was just, it was, I may have even cried, like it was just that inspirational seeing these what this father and son team had gone through to push themselves to the absolute max. And there's a moment where they finish the run and you could just, they're just sprinting to the finish line and the crowd's going absolutely crazy for these two inspirational people. 
well, you know, my life went on and, and I never really thought much about Ironman much longer after that point in my life. And from there, I then went on and eventually I actually became an Ironman myself through my own journey. And, you know, you guys have listened to the show, so you know about that. And eventually, one of my biggest goals in the sport was to go and do the Ironman in Hawaii. For anyone who knows anything about triathlon and Ironman is that the Ironman is the ultimate achievement in triathlon. And it's quite a hard achievement to achieve in Ironman racing because you can't just sign up to do this race you have to qualify which means you have to go to other races around the world and you have to do really well in your age group category and I managed to I think got fourth my age group or something and so I managed to get to go to Hawaii Ironman and the 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 Hawaii Ironman is just an amazing life experience and I remember race morning you're just walking around surrounded by the world's fittest people like you really are, because again, it's not like you just anyone can sign up for this race. So you go to most Ironman and you're going to see a broad range of society. And it's really cool because you see people who aren't necessarily that fit, who have achieved this big goal. And whereas at the World Championship, you just see the fittest of the fittest because everyone who is there has to be qualified to get there. And with that, there kind of comes an ego, there kind of comes a self-importance. And, you know, like there can be... Um, it's all about me a little bit while you're there and uh, I know my experience was a little bit of that and I remember the morning of the race I'm getting ready for what I consider to probably be the most challenging day of my athletic career and I'm very focused and you're walking around and there's just you know 2,000 athletes walking around and it's kind of quiet and calm and I've got this amazing background music on which is kind of eerie has an eerie feel about it so you're kind of very inner in yourself and you know, you're thinking, well, what's going to happen today, and how am I going to survive today, and all the rest of it, and I remember I met this guy from Canada, and him and I were just talking about, you know, what our plan was, and one thing you can do in Ironman is, your badge of honour is your time, the time that your fastest Ironman is, it's almost like the tattoo we want to put on ourselves to let our world know how good we are, and uh, at that stage, I think I was like a nine and a half guy, so I was telling this Canadian guy that I was nine and a half, and I think you're slower than me, so I kind of felt like I was pretty cool, and as we're talking, we turn around and there is Rick and Dick Hoyt, the father combination that I'd watched on TV as a young man. And his team are blowing up the boat and putting the sun in the boat before the swim. And it was just one of those really humbling moments in my life, you know, in this moment where I'm facing my biggest challenge, where I'm proving my ego, where I'm, you know, just doing so much about my inner journey. I'm confronted with a man who is facing a challenge that is 10 times harder than I would face. And at this time, I don't know his exact age, but he was, he was in his 60s, I, I imagine, at this stage. You know, the guy in his 60s pulling his son around in a boat, you know, and biking and running. And uh, I remember the Canadian guy just turns to me and he goes, now that's a real Iron Man. And it just gave me a perspective that... Um, really aligned me around what was important and it was a really kind of valuable life lesson. Well, fortunately for me, I have interviewed the father in this team and his name is Dick Hoyt and his son's name is Rick Hoyt. Now, I'm sure just about everybody who's listening to this right now have probably seen the inspirational clips of these two doing races on YouTube. I've had millions and millions of views all around the world um, and I'll put a clip to one of the inspirational clips that uh, they have on the, the you know my website this week for with the show notes to go with the show, but it really is just an amazing story. It, you know, the Iron Man is only a part of their experience, and it's really interesting listening to this interview, seeing how the public 
took these guys when they first started doing what they're doing. So today we've got an interview with Dick Hoyt. He's the son of the father of Rick Hoyt, the two team of the most inspirational team that you'd ever see in the world. Before I do, I just want to talk about the patrons of the show. I just want to say a big thank you to all the patrons of the show. I currently have 19 patrons of the show. Uh, people like Paula Powerful, um, The Punisher. We've got George Baker, The Wild Bill. We've got Marina Klatt. Um, we've got Ginger Dave, Mary Power. So these are just some of the people who are patrons of the show. And one of the new patrons we got to the show this month were Gemma and Glenn Mitchell. And these are actually friends of mine. So it's really nice that they've supported me in the show here. Uh, Mitch is a guy who's, well, they both have been a part of my running business for a long, long time. And uh, I know Glenn listens to the show a lot. Obviously, Gemma does as well, which is really great to hear. Um, just the loveliest, loveliest couple. And it's really nice to talk to these guys. You know, they're, A, I find them both to be very, very honest around their life, which I really love. And uh, and I just love as a couple, you know, they're a little bit, you know, they're my age, so, they're, you know, in their 30s and stuff. And it's interesting listening to them as a couple, their commitment to making their couple, their relationship great. Um, they do some really powerful things that, you know, that, that show that, hey, this thing we're doing together is really, really important and um, we're going to not just live our lives in a day-to-day way, we're actually going to do activities to make us reflect and grow in our relationship and I think they're a real kind of role model for any kind of relationship and, uh, you know, I don't want to give away too much because it's their life but just some of the stuff I know they do to keep their relationship really strong is pretty great and uh, we've been out for dinner a few times with Glenn and, or we, his nickname's Mitch actually, Mitch and Gemma and, um, and every time they take, they're cl- they like good food. And every time they've gone out, they've taken us to places that have beautiful t- food. So I'm going to give them the nickname of Team Divine. It's Team Divine. It's Mitch and Gemma. You guys are Team Divine. So hopefully you like that nickname. So once again, you can join some of those other people who have became patrons of the show. And if you want to do it, just go to bevanjamesisles.com. It really, really helps in getting me to get more time into the show and, you know, get more work out there for you guys. So go to bevanjamesisles.com. We'll take you to our Patreon page and you can go from there. Anyway, here is my interview with Dick Hoyt. Right, guys, so um, on the show today we have probably one of the biggest legends in the sport of Ironman. You know, we have the Mark Allens and the Dave Scotts of the world, but one of the people, the, the two people who have really made our sport huge around the world are Rick and Dick Hoyt, and um, I'm sure most of you have actually seen the video of them and Ironman and some of the great stuff they've got on YouTube, and maybe even seen Dick actually out there talking. And today I have Dick Hoyt on the show. So welcome, Lloyd Dick. How are you going? Oh, thank you. I'm doing very well. Thank you. So it's um it's it's you know it's a treat to have you on the show. I tell you, um, can you just tell me about first of all a bit of your history before you started getting into doing all the sports? Where you came from uh, before you started running with uh, Rick? Well, I was uh, I was one of ten my family, you know, and um, let's see, we were very active, you know, in all different sports. All ten of us, we always we had a good great time, you know. Uh, playing together, but we were kind of a poor family, and when we played ice hockey, we'd have to, you know, share skates, and then we'd chop a little branch off a tree and take a piece of wood and use it as a puck and stuff like that, you know. But uh, I was very uh, active, and I I always did things the tough way. You know, I I always chopped wood so we have, you know, heat in the wintertime and stuff like that, and I used to work very hard. I used to go out and and, 
weed gardens for 50 cents an hour and pick strawberries and stuff like that for $5 a basket. And so I was always doing things the, the rough way and the tough way. Um, and then when I got into school and uh, when I got into the sixth grade, I found out what sports was all about. And, uh, and so I really got involved in sports. Even though I was very, very small, I was 90 pounds soaking wet. Wow. And when I was a freshman in school, and I was playing middle linebacker and fullback and all this and that, I just loved to uh, go out there and play rough sports and be able to hit people and stuff like that, <laughs> you know. So, um, and when I went to high school, that's all we had was uh, three sports. That's all we had was basketball, baseball, and football. And I was captain of the baseball team and captain of the football team. And I did play basketball, even though I was very short, you know. But uh, we had a lot of fun. There was only 50 kids in our graduating class, and we only wow. had 11 players on a football team, so nobody could get hurt, and you had to play both ways, you know? Great. But, um, and when I was going through high school, I met my wife, Judy, um, and uh, she was the head cheerleader, and I was captain of the football team, and so we started dating at a very young age, and we ended up uh, the class couple, you know, when uh, when we graduated as seniors, and then we got married, um I was 19, she was 18, and uh, Rick was born when I was 20, and she was 19. And when well, so you're Rick, quite young, weren't you? What's that? You were quite young. Quite young, yes, mm. when we got married. I mean, we we were dating for six years before we got married, so we started dating when we were about 13 years wow. old. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so, so did you notice, right from the start, obviously, there were complications with Dick. Um, how did you handle that stage? Well, what happened, you know, we were very young, and um, when Rick was born, he was a very active baby, and he turned himself over, and the biblical cord that twisted around his neck, and he's in such a position that took a matter of minutes before the doctors could get it and untangle it. Well, that caused a lack of oxygen to Rick's brain, which caused brain damage, which is cerebral palsy. Yep. And at the time, we knew there was something wrong with Rick, but we did not know exactly what. Okay. So the doctors made an appointment for us to see a specialist when he was nine months old. And we took Rick to the specialist, and they did all kinds of tests, and the tests come back, and they were very negative. They said, forget Rick, put him away, put him in an institution, he's going to be nothing but a vegetable wow. for the rest of his life. And, you know, we haven't figured out what kind of vegetable he is yet. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, on the way home from that uh, doctor's appointment, my my wife Judy at the time, you know, her and I cried, but then we talked and we said, no, we're going to bring Rick home and bring him up like any other child. And this is what we have done. Rick has been mainstreamed and included all of his life. Today, Rick is 46 years old. He still can't talk, uses his arms and his legs, but he's graduated from public high school. He's graduated from Boston University. He lives all by himself in his own apartment. And Rick and I, up to today, have done 987 athletic events. Wow. So what got you started in athletic events? Okay, what was that again? What got you started in athletic events? Well, you know, uh, I didn't start till I was 40 years old because when Rick was born, I had to get a couple of jobs because of all the expenses of mm. paying his medical bills. Yeah. So Rick, Rick was attending a South Middle School out in Westfield, Massachusetts, and his gym teacher got him involved with all the other children in, in the gym activities. And he was also a basketball coach at Westfield State College, and he used to take Rick to the basketball games. Well, one of the basketball games, they made an announcement that one of the cross players from the college was in an automobile accident. He was paralyzed from the waist down. So when Rick came home from that basketball game, he told me all about it. He said, Dad, I have to do something for him. I want to let him know that life goes on even though he's paralyzed. Wow. I want to run in the race. Wow. And, and that's how it all got started. 
So when you first started out, what kind of racing were you doing? Well, uh, you know, I was 40 years old and I was not a runner. I used to run maybe three times a week, a mile each time, just to try to keep my weight down. Yep. And, and that's all we had was a Mulholland wheelchair, which was prescription form fitted to Rick's body. And we had a hard time pushing him in it, never mind running in it. But it was a five-mile race, and we went down, and they gave us the number double zero. And the gun went off, and Rick and I took off with all the other runners. Well, everybody thought that Rick and I would go to the corner and turn around and come back. Well, we didn't. We finished the whole five miles coming in next to last, but not last. That's one thing in all the events that we've been in, we've never been last. Really? Yeah. So then, so then did that just get the fire burning and, you know, obviously started a big thing? We, what happened was, you know... Um, I, when we get through with that race, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. Wow. Which was a very powerful message to me. If you think about it, somebody can't talk, use their arms and their legs, and now they're out there, and the disability disappears when they're running. He actually called himself Freebird because now he was free and able to get out there and run and compete with everybody else. Wow. But there was only one problem after that first race. I was disabled. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know you had so many muscles in your body that could ache. You know, I couldn't walk for two weeks. Oh, really? So I told Rick, I told Rick, I said, if we're going to continue running, we're going to have to get a chair built, you know, so I wouldn't be hurting as badly. So we found an engineer, and he just got some old pipes and some old tubings, and he welded them together, and then we got an insert. For, for Rick to sit in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, there were no baby joggers and the regular wheelchair athletes were using the four wheelchairs. Well, our chair had two wheels in the back and one in the front. Uh, Just think if we had patented that chair. Yeah, mate, we made. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because we had a bike company working for us, and I said, look, it, you got to build these chairs because other people are going to want them. And, uh, and they just walked away. You know, five years later, they were out buying baby joggers and selling them. Uh, so I really feel the baby joggers got patented after our chair. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you, you know, Rick and I weren't thinking about that. That's all we were thinking about was getting a chair built so we could compete together. So obviously the first, we, big, the first big event would have been maybe doing a marathon. Was that the first, you know, the first huge thing you did? Yeah, um, you know, we... we we, this new chair we got built, we call a running chair, yep. and we went over to do what we call our first official race, which was over in Springfield, Massachusetts, and nobody had come near us, nobody had talked to us, and nobody wanted us in the race, you know? And finally, the overall race, the director said that we could run. Well, it was, it was a 10K race, 6.2 miles, yep. and there were 300 runners, and Rick and I finished 150th out of the 300 runners. Oh, so then after that, we'd go to a different town and a different city and run, and finally people started coming up to us and talking to us, and they could see that Rick had a personality and such a humor, and he loved to be in the middle of running with everybody else. Yeah. Now, when we first started running, I used to get a lot of phone calls and letters from other families that had people with disabilities, and they were very upset with me. They said, what are you doing dragging your disabled son through all these races? Really? Are you just looking for glory for yourself? Wow. But they didn't realize he was the one that was dragging me through all the races. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that fall, Rick and I sat down and talked about what we wanted to do the following year. We decided we wanted to run the Boston Marathon. So we applied for the Boston Athletic Association. They turned us down. They said, no, you can't run without us. You're different than anybody else. 
but the Boston Marathon has a wheelchair division, so we applied through them. But they also turned us down saying, no, you're different than us, you can't run with us. But what they did say is, if you want, you can line up behind us and run. And that's what we did in 1981. Uh, and we ran our very first Boston Marathon in three hours and 18 minutes, wow. and that beat 85% of all the other runners. Wow. Well, we, we, I was looking, I was doing a bit of research into you, and your best time's 2.40, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Man, that's so impressive. So, yeah. And you, and you, how old were you when you did that? What's that? How old were you when you did your 2.40? I was in my 50s. I, I don't know the exact age. I think it was right around uh, 53 or 54 years old. I was, um, I was, I was our times got faster, you know. They, we started off slow, and, and then we got into triathlons. Uh, our times even got slower. But I was out doing the Ironman in, in Hawaii, and I was talking to Dave Scott and Scott Tinley, and they said, yeah, usually when you start doing triathlons, you're running slows down, but then you get faster. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what happened. Did, um... I was just talking to a guy this morning, I was telling him that I was going to be talking to you, and he's, he's quite a good runner, and he's saying, how do you train your technique with the fact that you're going to be running with your, your obviously, your running cart? Yeah, well, it, it's not as easy, you know, we, we've been very fortunate because of the races we've been in and the times we've been able to run, yeah. and so everybody thinks that it's, it's easy for us, but it really isn't, you know, because, you know, Rick's 115 pounds, his chair weighs 28 pounds, and I'm 172 pounds, yeah. so that's quite a bit of weight when you're out there, and a lot of people think that I lean on the chair to rest, but you can't lean on the chair because it's so balanced. If you lean on it, the front wheel pops up in the air, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like you're pushing forward with your elbows, are you? No, I'm I'm usually pushing forward with my hands. Oh, okay. When we first started, we used to just have a metal bar that went across, and I used to actually, my elbows always started bleeding and stuff because every once in a while they'd rub against the steel and the metal. And so they're very tender now. But now we do have a setup where it, it looks like the, uh, the, the the handlebars you have on a bike. Yeah, it looks know, like so aero bars, doesn't it, it? It looks like the same time. Yeah. But you can't you can't put any weight on them. You know, it's just that it's a lot more comfortable and it, it doesn't cut my elbows. So when you're when you're training, do you always train with Rick, or do you just train by yourself, or how does that go? No, um, when we first started, I used to train with Rick all the time. But what happened is Rick ended up going to Boston University, and he was an hour and a half one way. Uh, you know, so I couldn't I couldn't go in and train with him. So what I did is I replaced him with a bag of cement. Okay. Because because at the time he, when he went to college, he was only a hundred and five pounds, and a bag of cement weighed ninety four pounds. Okay. But you should see the looks I got when I put the <laughs> bag of cement in a running chair and in the bike and run and bike around town. They so said, "Oh, there goes that loony guy again." <laughs> so so you. But always, it worked. <laughs> so you always train with the cart. With the, with the bag of cement. Oh, no, no, not, not now. No. You see, we've been ra- we race like every weekend. Okay. So I really don't need to, to wait when I'm out there training a lot of times. Okay. It's only when, if I think I need it, then I train with the cart. So when I, come- do tra- I do train with the bike all the time, yes, because it's a different type of bike. Yeah. Do, um, when it comes to um, training, when you, let's say you're training for an Ironman, how do you treat your training for an Ironman? Well, you know, I, 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 I have to go and work my upper body, too. So what I usually do is I usually go to the gym, and I use all the machines there. I don't lift the, lift the free weights, 
but I do everything for endurance. I use all the machines, and I do three sets of 20 reps. Yep. So I do everything for endurance. So I'm usually in the club for about three hours. And then after that, I, I would go out and either run and swim or go out and bike. Now, when we're biking, I have to go out and bike for like 10 hours. Really? Because, because of the weight of the bike. See, when, when you get the weight of Rick and the weight of myself and the weight of the bike, you're talking 365 pounds. Wow. Which is a lot of weight. So, you know, we're lucky if we can get going 14 or 15 miles an hour. Wow. I mean, I have to pedal going down hills. <laughs> the bike is the, the bike is is the toughest part for us, so I have to spend more time on the bike. Wow! And what about um, swimming? How much do you do swimming wise? Well, I I try to swim when I go out for a ten hour bike ride. I usually don't swim or run that day, but yep. every other day I'm usually out there swimming. I see. What happened was when we we decided we were going to do triathlons, I did not know how to swim. And I hadn't been on a bike since I was six years old. Yeah. So I was I had I was changing jobs and it meant I had to buy a new house. So I says, Well, if we're gonna do triathlons, I'm gonna buy a house on a lake. Yeah. So I can learn how to swim and that's what I did. I bought a house in Harlem, Massachusetts on Hamilton Reservoir. And I'll never forget the first day I went down and jumped in the lake, guess what happened? I sank. <laughs> My body's like a piece of lead, you know? I couldn't swim fifteen feet. <laughs> So every day I'd go out there and I'd swim a little bit further, a little bit further, and then in the wintertime I'd join the YMCA so I could continue swimming. And then, then you know, then we had to get the rest of the equipment built, you know, the bike and, and the running chair and all yeah. that. And so, uh, and actually we did not get all the equipment until the, the day we did our first triathlon, so we didn't know if it was going to work or not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. Okay, keep going. So I, I really do. I put in a lot of hours, and especially for the Ironmans, like I'm saying, and, and most of the training is on the bike and then the swim, and I do less on the run because the run is our best part, and we've been running longer than we have been doing triathlons. Do you, um, do you plan on doing more Ironmen? Right now, no. Uh, what's happening now, uh, Rick and I are tra- traveling all over the world, and we're doing speaking engagements, yeah. you know, and, and flying is not fun anymore. Okay. You know, the yeah, the quality of the air in the airplanes is terrible. Yeah. I can still compete for fifteen to seventeen hours, but, but I'm on an airplane for three hours. I'm totally wiped out. Okay. You know what they do? They they recirculate the air in the yeah. airplane, so yeah, if terrible. somebody's sick and everything else, it goes right into your, mm. your mouth. You know, and uh, it used to be better quality air when they used to let people smoke because they used to take the air from outside the airplane. You know, uh, but that doesn't okay. mean I want to see people start smoking again. <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe to me what it's like for Rick on race day? Let's say Rick's doing an Ironman because, you know, for most of our athletes, we can probably identify, although, you know, tying a boat and riding with someone on on top of our bike seems pretty crazy. We can kind of maybe comprehend that. What's the experience like for Rick? Well, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you know, he's just out there sitting in a chair getting a ride. But it's not. It's very difficult for him. You know, he's sitting uh, on the bike. He's sitting right up front there. And, you know, he's catching all the wind and all that and all the bugs or anything that's in the air. And, you know, the sun is beating down on him, you know, when you're out there in those lava fields and stuff. So, you know, he has to keep himself hydrated and stuff. Yeah, because we're out there so long on on the bike and then the run, and you know he's sweating and everything else. Mm. So, so it's not not as easy as people think. Well, he's just sitting there, you know. It's not, and you know he he gets excited just like all the other athletes. Yep. You know, he, his adrenaline gets flowing. He's excited, and you know it, he's out there doing this thing. You know, his body and everything else, 
and he gets his arms going and his legs going. And, and uh, it's so nice sometimes when we're out there and, and we're biking, you know, and we've been out there, say, for six hours on a bike, and then all of a sudden... It, just to cheer me up, I can hear him. He's got this sound, you know. He can't talk, yeah. but he has this sound, and to me, it's like he's telling me he's having a good time, yeah. and he's re- relaxing and he's enjoying it, and everything's okay. Wow, you know, and you know, he's he's got the he he's got to take chances because you know there's possibilities that we can tip over, and we did crash in Hawaii. You know, we, we were 85 miles into the bike one year, and, and we ended up crashing, and we spent five hours in the hospital, and he ended up with eight stitches and, you know, a lot of skin off his body and everything else. Wow. What's, um, what's, what's, your, what's the mental game like for you, Dick? You know, like, obviously, um, like, you must be so mentally strong. How, how, how have you developed that over the years, and what are some tips maybe that you could give to some of our listeners when it comes to mental strength? Yeah, I uh, like I told you, you know, when we first started talking when I was a kid, I always did things the hard way, and I, I, I worked hard, and I've always worked hard. I do everything the hard way, you know. In the wintertime, if we get a foot of snow, I'll stay out there for three or four hours and shovel snow. You know, I get an ache a lot for a lawn, and I'm out there, and I'm pushing the lawn more. I don't have a ride on or none of that stuff. Yeah. And I was... I. It was in the military, you know, for 37 years. Yeah. And I really think that that helped me. Yeah, because, uh, you know, it, it, I got into physical fitness. I was the uh, support officer for the base, and I was the uh, physical fitness officer on the side, and I was the weight control officer and the no-smoking officer. So really, everybody hated me because they said, oh, here he comes. He's going to make us quit smoking and lose weight, you know, and go out and run. You know? But it was a lot of fun, and I helped a lot of people quit smoking and stuff. So I just think it's, you know, get, getting out there and you got to be prepared mentally and physically. You know, you can't have just one over the other. And when we wake up our minds, we're going to do something. We're going to complete it no matter what happens. People look at Rick and I and they, and they see how focused we get, you know, three days before an event like that. And they say, you know, I'm not paying attention to anybody else, what they're saying to me or anything else. And it's not to be rude or anything like that. It's just that I'm preparing myself and I know we're going to go out there and we're going to do it. And people say, you know, the look on your face, a freight train is going to go in front of you. You're either going to go under it over it or some way, but you're going to accomplish your mission. When it comes to um, toughest events, what are the toughest things, maybe your toughest days you've actually experienced when you've been out there? Uh, there's, there's so many of them. Um, one of the toughest times we were over in uh, Japan competing in a triathlon over there. And uh, it, you know, the Japanese, I think they do everything. It's the toughest part of the day when you're, the ocean is the roughest, you know, <laughs> when the sun's out and everything else. But uh, we, we were over in Japan and uh, we were doing a triathlon and it, the, the ocean was very, very rough and it was raining so hard. And I was kind of concerned because by the time we finished the swim, Rick's boat had filled up with water. Oh, really? You know, so I was very concerned, you know, about him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so when we finished the swim, uh, he was okay. Well, I have to check on him. What I try to do is call the lifeguards and have them, you know, take a look at him and check just to make sure that he's all right. And then we took him out of there, and I, I couldn't believe it. I still swear that when we started the bike, it was 90 degrees straight up, straight up a hill. Wow. <laughs> you know, and, it, and it, the rain came down so hard on the bike that it was unbelievable. <laughs> and one of the, the thing there was a problem. The night before, see, I didn't know you, you're not supposed to eat sushi the night before. 
Okay. And they, they were having a big party with the pro athletes and all that, and they had sushi there. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, if I sure needed, somebody would say something. But we, we, when we got through the swim and we started out on the bike, I ended up with diarrhea. Oh, no. So what I had to do, I had to find some woods, you know. And, and so I had to put Rick up against a tree, and, you know, they were covering us. And they're following me with the camera. And just, they, they, they thought I was quitting. I was running away, you know. I said, no, no, no. And this happened. This happened about five times on the bike. And then we... we we finished the bike, and I was completely dehydrated. Because, yeah. you know, when you get the runs like that, and yeah. I felt terrible. You know, my face was blue and everything else. And, and you know, they were all concerned. They were asking, have you ever seen him like this and all that? But we were very fortunate. We went to the first water stop, and I drank two glasses of water and ate two bananas. And, boy, it just picked us up, and we had, we had a real good run. But I would say that that would have to be one of our toughest triathlons. Yeah. Well, and what's what's the most enjoyable one you may have done? Well, you know, if it comes down to one race a year, Rick would like to do the Boston Marathon because, you know, we're from Boston. He graduated from Boston University, yeah. and we got a crowd favorites and all that. But yeah. to me, it's the Ironman Triathlon in Hawaii. Yeah. I just love it out there. I, I love the people out there. I love all the athletes. To me, the triathletes are the toughest and the best athletes in the world, and they don't get enough credit for it. You know, th- these guys are out there competing in what they do and in the time that they do it in. And, you know, and they're not making that much money, even the pros. I mean, no. you take a baseball player, and sometimes they don't even get a ball hit to them. They get up at bat, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they're making $10, 20000000 million a year. Yeah. It's just that they're, they're in the stadium, and they make people pay, you know. And it's the same way with football. You see a guy run 40 yards, the next thing he's got to go sit and take oxygen. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and basketball, you know, these guys now, they can stand in and put the – you know, but the hands, they can just lay it through the hoop, you yeah. know? <laughs> it's unreal. And the money they get, and then they walk down on the court. So I just love triathletes, and I think triathlon is the best sport in the world. So you're saying that you do quite a bit of speaking nowadays. Um, what kind of message do you get? Because obviously you take it to a lot of the corporate world. What kind of message are you kind of putting out there with your speaking? Okay, our message is yes, you can. There isn't anything you can't do as long as you make your mind up to it. And I don't know if you've gone to YouTube or anything else and seen the DVDs that are out on us. I've seen seen, it. I have seen some of them, actually. Yep. Yeah, one is My Redeemer Live and the other one is is Can, you know. Yes, you can. And people are using these DVDs all over the world. They're using them in churches. They're using them in pro sports. They're using them in all these big corporations. They use them to inspire and motivate these people these people, you know, yeah. and when, when I get, you know, I don't know how many speaking engagements I've done, but like last year, I did 113 and turned down 200, wow. and I've, I've spoken to some of the largest corporations in the world, yep. and when I get through speaking to them, they come up to me, and they're saying, you know, Dick, we've had a lot of speakers, and thousands of them, and that is the most inspirational story we've ever heard in our lives, Wow. and it really motivates and inspires them. Okay, so you know you're in this position where, you know you you're kind of recognised as one of the world's biggest uh, inspirations. You really are. Like, like I, I, I work at a gym, and this morning uh, before my class, I was just saying how I'm going to be talking to the guy, and I and like most of the people in the class knew of you, and this is in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, what's it like for you? How do you take that responsibility first of all, and how do you take that with your ego? I suppose. Well, you know, uh, when Rick and I first started running, you know, we never thought we would be running a marathon. 
Yeah. It, it was not in our minds. Rick had two other brothers, and they were good athletes. And I used to take time off from work and take Rick to support them. Yeah. You know, they, they, they played all the sports. They played baseball. They played football. They were swimmers and all that. Matter of fact, my middle son, he was captain of the swim team. Wow. And he, he could swim any stroke, and he was always either first or second, you know? Yeah. And then my youngest one, he was captain of the wrestling team, and he was undefeated in his senior year. And they do triathlons with us and everything else. But, you know, we were big supporters of them. And now Rick and I are out there, and, and we're doing all this stuff. And they're our support team. We we do a lot as a family, you yeah. know, with the other two brothers. But we never thought that we'd be inspiring and motivate some, so many people. And it's worldwide. It's, the emails we get here are just unbelievable. Oh, I can imagine, know? yeah. And people, every race we go to, people come up to us and they say, Rick and Dick, we want to thank you. We saw you guys out there competing. And they said, wow, if they can do it, we can do it. And now we're in the best shapes of our lives, and it's because of you. Wow. We get more emails from people doing Ironman triathlons now that use our story. They use our DVD in training, and then when they're out there competing, they're thinking about us when they have hard times, and that pushes them to be able to finish it. So it's just amazing to us, you know, what is going on. And right now, you know, because the first question everybody says, you know, Dick, you're 68 years old, you've done almost a thousand events. When are you going to quit? You know? Yeah. And I said, how can we quit now? Because yeah. now these people are motivating us because of what we're doing for them. You know? So With you get a lot back to you. What's that? You get a lot back from the, you know, the inspiration. From, from yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 When it comes to organisation for a race, you've obviously got so many more layers to think of. Uh, you must have that down packed nowadays, or is that still a mission? Well, it, it's, yeah, it's very difficult, and it, it, you know, with all the equipment we have, it's very expensive to travel. Yeah. You know, because we don't have any airlines as a sponsor or anything else. But, you know, most people, they go do the triathlon, they have their bike, and they have their briefs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> their bathing suit, and that's it. Well, you know, when we go out to the triathlon, we have the boat. We have to blow up the boat. We've got to take a, a, the beanbag chair that Rick lays in. We have the bike, and then we have the chair that goes on top of the bike. So you can, and the, the bike is a lot longer than most bikes, so yep. it costs you extra for that. And then the, that chair, and then you have the running chair, and then you have the wheelchair rigs in all the time. So we have to put that all together. And when we get there in the morning for triathlon, we have to put all that stuff together. You know, you got to blow up the boat. you got to take the seat that goes on the bike and put that onto the bike. Then you got to put the wheels and set up the running chair. And then you have to set it in different areas for when you tra- transition. So it takes a lot more longer for us to get it set up to do a triathlon. <laughs> Must be a mission. Um, if you're going to give any piece of advice to a new, because we get a lot of new um, Ironman listeners, oh, triathletes at least listen to our show. If you were to give any advice to a new Ironman, what would that be? Well, I guess what I do is uh, tell them to go easy. Don't start off too quick and. I hope that these people, especially on the swim, it's a mass swim, and there's a lot of people that go out there and they don't realize it, and they get in the middle and they get kicked and punched in the face, and they start hypovating and hypovating, and and so I would, you know, have them take it easy and really get to the outside or something like that on their first swim front. And not go out too hard because that that everybody has a tendency. Everybody takes off and everybody wants to take off and be fast you know, fast with them. And just be be safe, you know, the fir- especially the first one. Just be safe and go out there because you, you don't have to go out there and set a record your first time, you yeah. know. 
and and make sure that they, they keep themselves hydrated. That's very very important, uh, especially when you're out in Hawaii with that intense heat and you're on nothing but the lava fields. Yeah. And then they have to make sure that they eat. And one of the biggest things is don't change what you've been doing all along. Yeah. You know, you never want to do that. Just do and use every all the equipment and do it the way you've always done it. Do not change anything on race day. Do, do you think you eat more than the average um, Ironman on race day because the fact that you're pushing Dick? I mean, Rick, sorry. Uh, you know, Rick and I first started out, we used to do carbo-loading and all that because that was the thing to do. And, yeah. and right now I don't carbo-load at all. I eat my regular meals. Uh, I have a serious cholesterol problem, so I have to I have a special diet and watch what I eat. And, uh, and yes, I, I feel that I do have to uh, eat a lot more and keep myself more hydrated yeah. uh, when we're out there competing because of the energy that I'm burning off with all the weight that I'm pulling, pushing, you know. Yeah. So, um, but I have, you know, I have my special meals and stuff like that, but it, it's nothing really special. I, that's uh, not different than any other time during the year when I'm eating a meal. So so you're saying you're around 900 and how many races is it? Nine what? 987. So will the 1,000 be, what, next six months? Uh, we, it's going to be next year, and what we're trying to do, next year is going to be our 27th Boston Marathon. Uh-huh. We're trying to plan it out so that will be our 1,000th thousandth event wow. and everybody wants to come and cover it because I don't know I don't know if any other athletes have done a thousand events but we got people that want to c- come and cover it and you know we, we figured it, it would be nice to be able to do an Ironman triathlon for the thousandth event but I yeah. really don't have time to train for it and I wouldn't want to go out there on the thousandth event and, you know and, and not be able to finish it yeah you know? fair enough and yeah. I don't mean to be negative about that but but you know it's tough even doing the marathon you know because you do things different different ways and, and you train different ways and stuff like that but see back home here the winter is very very tough yeah and and rick you know he his body doesn't move at all and when we're out there in the winter time there's been times where i've grabbed a hole of his foot and his foot felt like it was a piece of ice oh really you know yeah so we, we got to plan it so it's going to happen on that day do um like in 2004, I was in Hawaii, and you didn't actually manage to finish the swimming time. Like in those kind of races, you're saying, you know, the Ironman, there's those risks that you won't actually finish. How do you handle that, like, yourself? Well, it was very, very difficult. Um, you know, I knew I was swimming as hard as I could. Yeah. And there was a guy in a surfboard beside me. He said, Dick, your arms are going like crazy. And he says, you're not even moving. Oh, really? You know, and that was the year that they had the earthquakes out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, before, and, and actually, I was told that they were even thinking of, of changing the swim course because there was an area out there where they knew it was the ocean was very, very rough. Uh-huh. And I think if you check on it, a lot of people had a lot slower swims. Yeah, mine was terrible. You know, but, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I didn't I didn't really even know. I had some idea because it seemed like we'd been out there for a long time that we didn't make the swim cutoff. Yeah, you know, it was it was it was very tough. But I just knew that I gave it the best that I couldn't have done any better than that. And yeah, as long as I go out there and do that and know I did my very best. And I just don't make the f- time fact. I mean, we know we can do an Ironman, but, you know, you have to do it by the times. Yeah. What, what, what time do you normally swim in an Ironman? Well, I think uh, we usually swim right around an hour and 40 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. 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 And, and bike? A bike is usually a tough one. We're usually out there for almost 10 hours on a bike, depending wow. upon the wind. Yeah. And then the run, you do what? 
the, the run, we've been, uh, I think our best one in the Ironman has been uh, like three and a half hours. Really? So it's usually around four hours. Wow. It must be nice, I suppose, because obviously coming off the bike so slowly, you'd be passing everybody on the run, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, that's what, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of fun. <laughs> and that would break their heart, because I know you're an inspiration and all, but a guy pushing his kid in the control, that would break their heart, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, I just, I just, I actually, you, you were an inspiration to me, uh, Dick. I remember years ago, um, before, this is when I was like 13, and I was bunking school one day and I was at home watching ESPN, and it must have been around 1990 or 2000 because uh, they showed um, you in Hawaii, and I remember just thinking to myself, wow, this is. Uh, the most phenomenal thing I'd ever seen on TV. And I, at this stage, I didn't even know what Iron Man was, but I remember you running up that finishing shoot and me getting goosebumps watching it, and I just thought to myself, wow, I'd love to one day do that. And obviously my lead has gone down, a, and my life has led down a similar path. And just to let you know that for myself, and uh, for I'm sure for many of our listeners, that you're a huge inspiration and doing a great thing in the world. So uh, we really appreciate your time today and uh, coming on Iron Man Talk. I know you're a very busy man. And uh, all the luck, best luck for your thousandth race, and uh, bring on the rest of the year. Well, thank you very much. I, th- I don't know if you're aware, but Rick and I are being inducted into the Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame. Oh, really? October. Wow. No, oh, um, yeah. so, so tell us about that. Yeah, it's just it's it's just amazing. You know, here's my 46 year old vegetable. You know, <laughs> going to be put in an institution, and now here he is being inducted into the Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame wow. on the 30th anniversary of the Ironman out in Kona, Hawaii. Wow! So that's just that, that's powerful, very powerful. That is very powerful. You're also going for the toughest athlete in the world thing. Right. Kathy sent me through an email saying that you've been nominated for the toughest athlete in the world. Um, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, the, the, uh, we ended up coming in second place. Okay, who won it? It was a, a musher. I don't even know what his name is. Okay. He's a musher, you know, he does the dog racing and stuff like that, and I guess he's been frostbitten and stuff, and I guess he's got cancer, and he, he, they say, I guess he's not supposed to live for another two or three years or something like that. Okay. I, I really didn't get in, in, involved in it because I didn't even know what was going on. But some of the athletes, you know, they started out with 32 of the toughest athletes. And, you know, like Muhammad Ali and Brett Farr and all these hockey players, all these professional athletes. And yeah. Little Rick and Dick Hoyt from Holland, Massachusetts. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing, yeah. Wow, great work. Well, thanks for your time today. and uh, sure, Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Right, Tim, hopefully you got some inspiration out of that. It's definitely a, an amazing story. And uh, it's funny, you know, you think back to the early times when they were out there racing and how the, the kind of world just didn't know how to accept them and it took them time to kind of pioneer. And it's funny, there's an inspirational clip going around right now on the internet of this young fella in, uh, I think it's somewhere in the UK, was doing a race uh, and you know, he had some kind, I, can't, I don't know what, I can't recall exactly what was wrong with him, but... You know, this kid could hardly walk and he finishes triathlon and there's this moment where he's like 100 metres from the end of the line and he'd been using, kind of think of an old person who uses um, like those big kind of, it's almost like a trolley that they used to walk forward. This kid was using it 
and with about 100 meters to go the kid decided to lose the trolley and start sprinting towards the finish line and while this kid is running he, if you think of Forrest Gump you see the kid in Forrest Gump when he's you know Forrest Gump has got those leg braces this kid has his leg brace and he obviously couldn't run that well and the kid just face plants like just literally runs and falls over in his face and um but gets up and he and he literally gets up and starts sprinting again and then face plants again and he does this probably four or five times until he gets to the finish line but it's just one of those inspirational moments where you go man some people really do show us how much further we can go and you know rick and dick hoyt have paved the way for kids like this for people like this to realize that we can achieve big things and some of the barriers we put around ourselves can be removed if we're willing to kind of confront them so hopefully you got something from today's interview of Rick Hoyt, uh, Dick Hoyt sorry. and if you want to check out the website you can go to my website bevanjamesisles.com and I'll have all the information up there once again if you want to become a patron of the show go to www.bevanjamesisles you can also check out my weekly newsletter there and if you want to get in my database you can do that there as well I haven't plugged my book in a while go to amazon.com and check out The Fitness Attitude by Bevan James Isles um, other than that I think I'll be back in a couple of weeks from now doing one of my kind of Bevan shows you guys have an amazing couple of weeks and keep just trying to be your best and I'll see you real soon.